0: Welcome to the Sober Grind Podcast. This is Pesh, and I'm here today with Austin Armstrong, and you are listening to The Sober Grind, right? Yes. And hello, Pesh. Hello. And uh, we have a special show. First of all, I want to thank everybody for the feedback that we got in the last week for our first segment, for our first show. It was and, incredible. And uh, it was incredible. I really enjoyed it thoroughly. And uh, today, we actually, we have a couple of things that we're going to be talking about. One of them is going to be interventions and, mm-hmm. and uh, how how you go about them, what the purpose of them is. There's some questions and answers, but uh, before we get into that, we actually have a new segment to the show. It is called The Recovery Story of the Week. We have my special friend here, Sean, today, who's, I think you almost have four years of sobriety?
1: It'll be four years and a little over two weeks.
0: Okay, two weeks. All right, great. Um, Sean's going to actually, we're going to you know, just give him the floor real quick and have him Tell us a little bit about his recovery and the recovery story of the week. Go ahead, Sean. Okay, yeah. so my name's Sean. I mean, I've
1: been sober since January 2nd of 2014 now, so yeah, a little bit over two more weeks. It'll be four years. Um, not the first time I've gotten sober, but I mean, it's definitely, definitely the most successful I've been. And start out small town, Indiana, perfect life. I mean, couldn't ask for anything else. And... Of course, like most small town American, now a little bit of an opiate problem started with the you know the painkillers that worked its way up to full blown intravenous heroin addiction. But I've been intervened on before and it it worked, but I didn't go that time. But I mean, there's no such thing as a failed intervention, which you're going to be covering later. Um, of course, I had all of the problems that kind of come along with being a drug addict, you know the the arrest for drug-related crimes, I've had the overdose, which nearly took me out, but after that I was able to find long-lasting recovery. So, it's definitely been a blessing, and they're gonna be here on the the sober grind, definitely an honor, meet with a couple of great guys, and learn more about interventionists.
0: Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much, Sean. Appreciate your self-disclosure and telling us about your experience. Yeah. Even with the minimal amount of time. This is also going to be a, hopefully,
2: a weekly segment as well. So if you would like to be featured on the Recovery Story of the Week, send us an email, leave a comment on any platform that you see this on,
0: and we would love to share your story. Like I said at the top of the show, uh, we're going to be talking about interventions, and Austin's got some wonderful questions that he's prepared for me, and I'm going to try to answer them to the best of my ability. Uh Go ahead, Austin. Yeah, we're gonna just jump right in.
2: So, Pej, I know you uh, you work as a as an interventionist. Would you mind explaining to our
0: audience that maybe don't know what it is? What is? Sure. Obviously, you know when somebody is um, probably requiring recovery, or they're you know deep in their disease of addiction or alcoholism, often they don't even know that they're engulfed in in you know the the abyss, for better sake of words of of their addiction to work to the point where everybody sees it but them. So uh, family members may see it, people in the workplace may see it, but the actual addict alcoholic might be in such a state of denial. After all, denial is not just a river in Egypt. You know that a lot of people don't realize that um, <clears throat> that they're not doing well. You know, mm-hmm. uh, even sometimes people are just oblivious to it after job loss or after certain. Uh, situations that may happen they may still think that they have everything under control and truly they don't have everything under control uh, there's a lot of issues within the family a lot of kids notice it um, a lot of kids aren't stupid you know as kids as as, as low of an age of uh, as three and four years old know that dad your mommy aren't well yeah. so often some, somebody needs to intervene and often it can't be, the, the husband or the wife, it can't be the grandparents, it can't be the parents, because uh, don't you already know that the addict alcoholic has heard it so many times, that the way that they're being talked to, they don't want to be lectured, they don't want people to point out their glaring defects of character, they don't want people to call them out and let them know like they're not doing well. so Oftentimes, somebody such as an interventionist needs to come in and inter- intervene, however that may be, and there are many different ways that, that can be tailored and put together in, into a proper plan to, you know, and hopefully have a successful intervention in letting this person know, hey, your life is not running right, this is what will help, you know, you're affecting people, and how can we help you, you know, so, Yeah.
2: Yeah, that, that kind of explains my next question a little bit, but maybe if you could go a little more in depth of why do you think they they work so well? Why do you think interventions work so well with the individual?
0: Well, uh, I think that they work so well because obviously, usually the interventionist uh, has a lot of experience themselves. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they were once an addict, alcoholic, an active mm-hmm. addiction, who somebody intervened on them, so they I have see. that moment of clarity. Mm-hmm. That that. Uh, Aha moment, uh, yeah. you know, that where they come to Jesus, like they, they basically realize, wow, you know, like this person just got through to me. So then they want to carry that on to somebody else. And then they, it becomes common practice. Like if they, if they see that they can successfully help certain people get the appropriate help that they need. Then, then, you know, it's rewarding. It's it's nice to see a good intervention go down to the point where you can get through to that person that's suffering and have them figure out their own breaking point and turning point into where they actually want to, you know, besides just entertaining the thought, which a lot of addicts and alcoholics in their active addiction think about, I want to get the help, mm-hmm. but <clears throat> they know something's not right, but they don't know how to go about it. So an interventionist... Is key. It's like a key figure and a key person that could show you, you know, the pathway on on uh, seeing and and, and and actually seeing where you're coming short in life, recognizing your your difficulties. Uh, fam- um, often, the interventionist will put together uh, the family and have them. Write everything out in letters and and, then come together as a whole and present the letters and talk about how they're all affected. But everybody's got to be on the same page. And before you know it, uh, all of a sudden something might happen within that person, you know, the person that's suffering to where they think, oh, my God, like I've always wanted this. I've always needed this. I'm so happy that finally, like I I get to get out of this abyss of addiction and, and go and get the help that I need. Yeah, it seems like a really
2: powerful starting point uh, for the recovery process. It is indeed.
0: That's awesome. It
2: is. So, what are some of the intervention techniques that you have seen in your experience work?
0: Often, uh, I believe that, well, usually an intervention w- can be like a roller coaster ride. Mm. How it, so? Because it'll start off. Um, for one, the person who you're intervening on, you know, you've already got the family and everybody on board. So you've coached them on, on what mm-hmm. to say, the do's, the don'ts, and all that. You've got all the letters prepared and everything. And, and you know, usually the person that you're intervening on is caught off guard. Or they, they are, you know, sort of very surprised. Like, oh, what is going on here? Like, who's this guy? Like, what? And, and, and if, you, if you go and approach that person in a certain way... Um, you have to make them feel comfortable. You have to let them yeah. know that, yes. um, mm-hmm. so you know, like, uh, my name is so-and-so. I'm Pej. I'm here today. You know, your family has brought me in. We wanted to have a little talk with you. Um, don't be caught off guard, even though you are, uh, but I just wanted to, you know, just make things apparent for you and talk to you a little bit about, you know, what's going on with you. How's it going? And so right there, you, you kind of, you have a calm tone. But the second that they start hearing, you know, when, once you, like, introduce the family members and say, well, your sister feels this way. Well, your girlfriend feels this way. Well, your mother feels this way. Then all of a sudden, um, during the letter process, especially when they're reading their letters, a lot of emotions will flow. So mm-hmm. there will people, be people that are crying, um, you know, as they're reading the letter. And, and sometimes the addict, alcoholic, will, uh, you know, not even pay them no mind. I mean, to the point where they're, they're emotionless. They don't know how to feel. Mm-hmm. They've been bogging down their emotions and their feelings. With drugs and alcohol for mm-hmm. so long, they're just numbed out. Sometimes, they will break out in tears themselves. Mm-hmm. They'll become highly emotional. So, it all depends. Sometimes, uh, they'll get angry. You know, they'll they'll oh, be yeah. like, they don't want to hear this. You know, like, that's the last thing they want to hear. It's definitely a buzzkill. You know, it's it's like putting a damper on their disease. And, and most people that are in their disease of addiction... The last thing that their disease wants is to hear this person telling them and exposing them and telling them the truth about who they've been, you know. So they could react in several different ways just in the letter process with it itself. Then, after a period of time, when you actually sit down and everybody, you know, the, the dust settles and we we want to see where the person is with everything, and the ultimatums have been set forth, and you won't be living here anymore unless you want to get the help or you don't have a place in our lives, unless you want to get the help, well, then the person can react differently. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it can be very easy. The person may be at the point in their life where they're totally licked. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're just tired of living the way that they've been living. They've Mm -hmm. been waiting for this for a long time. You're like they're saving grace, and now they're ready to actually just move forward. What do you got for me? I'm completely, absolutely, completely destroyed. I'm ready for you to just guide me in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Those are the, inter- if, if everybody reacted that way in interventionists, uh, in interventions, I may be out of a job. But <laughs> but uh, if, if actually uh, there will be times when the people become combative, mm-hmm. they sure. will become upset. So that's where the part of the roller coaster ride goes up, 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 and then down, down, down. Yeah, I mean, it's I it's it's to the point where you know they might there may be some uh, volatile interactions where they're yelling at each other or they start getting angry, and then it's the interventionist jobs to, to kind of just like bring the like simmer the room down, just to make sure that the emotions don't fly. Oftentimes people will speak out of place. The family members will say too much. Mm. and you want to let them know in advance like this is what you say be clear and concise this is what you want to say and you just keep it at that because the intervention can go very well if they hold their boundaries and hold their ground and just keep it to where they just say this is where i stand this is how i feel and this is what you must do less is more approach less is much more approach but if they Mm. keep on going on and on and rambling and saying the same thing that they they've been hearing all their lives yeah what's going to change nothing's going to change so if nothing changes nothing changes so truly uh, it can go up it can go down but what i often see in a lot of interventions is no matter how many times the roller coaster goes up and down it has to end at a certain point and mm-hmm. that's where the interventionist can just cap it off and 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 just say okay so this is where your family's at with this this is where you're at what do you think where can we go from there and sometimes you know it can either it's 50 50. You know, sometimes it goes very well and sometimes the person just tells you, get out of my house, get out of my face, I'm out of here, I'll pack my bags, I'm out of here, I'll leave. You know, and then often the, the interventionist can continue to try to talk to them and say, are you sure this is a good idea? Maybe it's not good to make that rash decision in the heat of the moment, but uh, we're just trying to help you, you know? like yeah. that's all That's all we came here for today. It's not because we're against you, it's because we want to try to help you get your life back. So it's very necessary, and it can be very, very successful. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish all interventions were successful because then we would have a lot more people getting help, and unfortunately, some people just don't want to hear it, you know, and some people are still enabled by their families. That's where it becomes a miserable fail because families don't want to hold their end of the bargain, which, sure. which goes to show to often why the person being intervened on is so caught up and so sick in, in their disease. So let's let's continue
2: on that a little bit. So, uh, say an intervention is pretty successful, you get the individual to go into treatment to start their recovery journey.
0: What are some of the next steps for the family? What do they need to do to well, change? That's a great question. I think that often uh, interventionists uh, need to always keep the family in mind and realize that this person that they're intervening on obviously was part of a family system. After all, when it comes to addiction and alcoholism, it's a family disease. Mm, mm -hmm. It's not just the person. As I was just saying a second ago, some of the reasons that this person is so sick is because the family's so sick. The -hmm. person may be addicted to drugs and alcohol. The family's addicted to the person. Yeah. and the family is always trying to be the controller mm-hmm. the mediator the you know the overseer so often the family can be seen and perceived as sicker than the individual even though really? without the drugs and alcohol right wow. so I've seen and this, this, this in more recent times I've actually seen um, the the interventionists not just guide the family in the right direction I mean they'll send them to the traditional Al-Anon meetings and things like that. That's great, right? Um, do a lot of people do those 12-step groups? No, you. a lot of the families are so sick, they think that, no, Jimmy was the sick one. He needed the help. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't need to go to those meetings, right? Or they'll go to the meetings and they'll hear like A, B, and C, all these different stories that don't match up with theirs. And they think, well, you know, sorry, feel sorry for those people. But really, truly, it is their ultimate duty to yeah. get as involved in recovery as their loved one is so that they too can help work on themselves and, and break through the clutches of of codependency, yeah. of, of, of enabling, of always trying to save the person because truly, at the end of the day, that stuff is all just selfish stuff that anyway. They're doing that because it makes them feel good about themselves. Yeah. Um, so and, and, and I've also seen some interventionists put, you know, after doing an intervention, recommend and put certain family members in their own treatment. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I've seen people wow. go to treatment primarily for codependency. Oh, I for believe codependency yeah. only. Uh-huh. I believe there's some treatment center or something like that that just that just, works
2: on that just works on codependency. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you see a lot of uh, stubborn and hesitation from the parents' end?
0: Often. Or family members? Yeah. All the time. You have to understand, I'm Iranian. I'm Persian, so... In our community, I mean, a lot of people have this pompous, arrogant uh, perspective. Like they think they know it all, right? So they, they like they're above it all. Uh, I'm, I'm a renowned doctor or physician or lawyer. I'm not the one with the problem. He's the problem. Truly, they are the problem. They are the problem because they've got all this money that they've handed down to their kid, and and basically the kid is. Uh, not lived up to their expectations, hasn't become as educated as them, hasn't uh, gotten to the caliber of, of what they are in life on paper, you know, or successfully, and, and then probably never will be. Therefore, he's gone and taken all their money and just pretty much pissed it off, right? And and now these people think that, you know, why should I need to get help? Why do I need to work on myself? We've already put him in treatment. I don't need help. Just leave me alone. My job is done here. I wrote the letter for you. They think it just ends at that. That's not even, that's just the beginning. Yeah. You have just barely touched the surface of what you need to do uh, as far as a parent of a, of a suffering addict, alcoholic, and what really, you, in order to go f- forward, they really need to find that level of humility that they desire their kid to have in them staying sober. If the kid, if they were to do the work the way they expect their kid to do it, there's actually a family unit that can work and function well together and they can actually communicate. A level of communication will open up that they've never endured or, or ever been able to, to uh, witness or, or have be a part of their lives. That's incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome.
2: So as far as the family dynamic that should actually attend the intervention, who do you think should attend? Is there a maximum number of people? Is there a minimum? Is it Aunt Sally, the distant aunt that never is around?
0: Is it just close, intimate family? I think the people that are closest to the family members, the ones that live in the, in the house or are around the person or have been seeing the person deteriorate, and, and the ones that are more instrumental in the person's mm-hmm. life, um, often you want to see what the relationship is more personal, personally, but you want to see like what kind of history do they have. There may be some family member that's just no good. Like, you know it's going to make the intervention fail right off the bat because Uncle Jerry may have done something to this person that every time they see Uncle Jerry, they just they fall apart. Mm-hmm. They don't want nothing to do with him. Now you're going to bring him together with other family members that they don't really care for or want to hear from? And mm-hmm. because this guy's in the room, you think that's going to be... Like a turning point or a... T- no, it's actually going to probably make them rebel more and, and just be like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I'm out of here and get up and storm out.
2: Yeah, gotcha.
0: Yeah. So the, the, not it's, it's not about the more the merrier. It's about having the people that are the most closest to that won't put the risk of the person in the intervention uh, in a position where they will not be able to actually... Uh, want to make a change in their lives? You want you want just yeah. a few key members that mm-hmm. that the person will respond best to, or that will actually sit down and listen to the person uh, and, and express themselves.
2: That makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, I hope I've. I know I'm jumping all over the place, but I hope. No, I... Oh, this sp- is great. I'm okay. learning a lot. Okay. I hope everyone
2: uh, is learning a lot too. I'm sure. <laughs> so when would you say is is the perfect time to call an interventionist for help? Say you catch your. Son or daughter, uh, with drugs one time. Should you call then? Should you wait until it's uh, a really apparent problem? When's that that real sweet spot to get help?
0: I think uh, the sweet spot to get help is obviously when you've run out of options. You know, when when you're beating a dead horse and you have tried and tried and tried and tried to get through to your loved one, whoever it may be, a husband, wife brother, sister, child, um, whatever. If, if you are constantly trying to help them and to the point where your mouth is dry and you can't, you know, it's like you got to have somebody step in and, and perhaps a professional step in that will be able to hopefully be effective, more effective and say more to them than you've been able to. Because if you can't get through to them you can't squeeze blood from a turnip, right? I mean, you're not going to get anything out of this. You can try and try and try. But if you see that they're still in their act of addiction or alcoholism, what do you think? Like, you, you, it's time. It's time to call someone. How do you find a, a proper interventionist? Call me. If, if I can't help you, I, I've got a, a number of people that off the top of my head that I know would be the most effective. And they would definitely come in and do what, you know, the job would be done as the job should be done. You know as the interventions would wholeheartedly do so yeah well thank you so much for all
2: that information I want to leave off on a, a really positive note too can you think uh, off the top of your head if, if you've experienced any really successful intervention stories
0: yes actually we had a, a we had a young gentleman that was uh, I believe he's out in uh, Bakersfield mm-hmm. he was homeless okay and um, he had been homeless for a period of time. He was a young young man, probably in his early 20s. I think he was homeless for like a year. And um, his parents were always worried about him. Mm. They would often go try to talk to him, convince him to get help. Um, he was panhandling. He was mm. um, selling his body uh, mm. for drugs. And right. it, it was really sad. Um, so the family asked, you know, they didn't want to see him die on the streets. Yeah, absolutely. And they said that they'd been trying and trying and trying, and they asked us to come out and help him. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I went and I, you know, sat with him. At first, he, it, he just seemed like a shell of a human being. He didn't even mm-hmm. seem like he had it in him to, to carry on a regular conversation. But, um, but he did have this, this certain particular look in his eyes, like like, although hopeless— Still hopeful, still to a, certain, hope. a little bit of hope, yeah. And, um, and mm. you know, in having a conversation with him on the first round and first try, um, you know, there wasn't much of a conversation, but but he did say in that conversation that he would think about it. So mm-hmm. then we went back and we talked to him again, um, about a week later. And after talking to him, we brought him into a home, mm-hmm. and he, um, he was a character. There was a lot of different things that this guy would do, and he did them because I think he had just become so accustomed to the streets and living on the streets that, for example, he liked sleeping outside on the patio in January. Right? Oh, my gosh. So cold. It was, it, he, he liked it. He was used <laughs> to it. That was okay. just his way yeah. of life. Mm-hmm. He, he liked um, you know eating out of the trash. Mm-hmm. It, it was just... Yeah, to each their own. I think it, it was just a, a, a way of life for him. Uh-huh. But um, but he ended up staying in that house for a while. He he got some solid sobriety, and now he is now a stand-up guy that wears... That's the, amazing. He puts on a shirt and tie, and he goes to work, and he has a job, and he's paying his rent. He's self-supporting, and he has a car, and, um, you know, now he... T- I think last time I talked to him, he said he was uh, dating somebody, which which was wow. pretty amazing for him. Yeah. You know? I mean... He really worked through a lot of his stuff. We 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 definitely set him in the direction of going into like the right recovery community, and he I think he was doing a lot of AA and NA and things like that. But yeah, you know, it's, it's just it's things like that that I, that are the most rewarding and the most things that I live for in recovery is to see the success stories and people come from nothing and turn it around and become truly become something.
2: Yeah, that's that's incredible. Yeah, and so motivational. It's warming my heart. I hope that warmed all of your hearts as well. There is always hope.
0: There
2: always is hope. Always hope. Always Pej, my friend, thank you so much. Thank you this very was, much. This uh, is incredible again. Yet another great episode of the sober grind. Sober grind, and again, ladies and gentlemen, this podcast is made possible by Beginnings Treatment Centers. If you need any addiction help at all, they are incredible and would love to communicate with you. You can call them directly at 800-387-6907 or visit them online at beginningstreatment.com. We also have a wonderful online Facebook support community called Ask an Addiction Specialist. You can join in there and directly communicate with addiction specialists and get all the support you need. You can find that at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash ask an addiction specialist thank you again pej so grind out thank
0: you